Hello, and welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a food service industry podcast by Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor, Brett Thorne. My guest for this episode is Ricky Moore, the chef and owner of Saltbox Seafood Joint in Durham, North Carolina, and the winner of this year's James Beard Foundation Award for Best Chef in the Southeast. Since I have a Beard Award winner as my guest, this might be a nice time to take a look at what the Beard Foundation has been through, uh, both over the past few years and years before that. The James Beard Foundation was founded in 1986 by friends of James Beard, who was a legendary bon vivant in New York City's West Village, as well as a cookbook author, a consultant, and a beloved promoter of American cuisine. Calling American food cuisine was actually kind of a big deal back then, uh, because at the time, serious chefs generally didn't consider American food to be a cuisine. It was just food soulless, bastardized, and a sad, pale shadow of European food from which all great cuisine was believed to come. And really, you weren't taken seriously as a chef if your food wasn't French. It was going to be several decades yet before even an Italian restaurant in New York was to be granted a coveted four-star review in the New York Times. Anyway, James Beard's house became the James Beard Foundation's headquarters, and it was also turned into sort of a dining club for local self-proclaimed foodies. I like to joke that the average Baird Foundation member is a dentist or accountant from Long Island, but honestly, I don't know what the demographics are. At any rate, the Beard House quickly became a sought-after venue for chefs to come from, from all over the country, and sometimes from abroad, to cook for those dentists and accountants, and for usually one table, a ten top, of media members, of which I was often one. Sometimes I was invited by the Beard House itself, but most often I was invited by chefs who cooked there and wanted me to check out their food. It was a lot of fun. I went a lot. Before the pandemic, I averaged around one dinner per month there, which means that since I've been in my job for more than 20 years, I have eaten at the Beard House hundreds of times. Cooking at the Beard House was considered a huge honor for chefs. It was often called the Carnegie Hall of Cooking. Uh, However, the chefs generally paid their own way to cook at the Beard House, uh, including food. They were sometimes, I think, usually offered food stipends, but they usually waived them so that uh, the Beard Foundation could benefit. Because it was such an honor to cook at the Beard House, Uh, The chefs who were cooking there often brought their teams to New York, too. They put them up. They took them out on the town. And that meant, along with their food and travel, and maybe they had to close the restaurant to cook at the Beard House. It kind of depends. They often spent thousands or tens of thousands of dollars for the whole thing. Contrary to popular belief, you did not need to cook at the Beard House to be nominated for a Beard Award. The Beard Foundation has had its share of scandals. Uh, One former president, Len Pickell, was in fact arrested for embezzling from the organization's scholarship fund, and he died in prison. The the awards, however, remain separate from all of that, as far as I know. Uh, 
it it's been looked over by independent accounting firms, different committees. It's a it's a it's it's it seems like there's a pretty solid firewall between the program committee that hosted and put on the dinners at the Beard House and the awards committees. There are different committees for uh, different types of media and for the Restaurant and Chefs Awards. I was a judge of the Beard Awards for quite a few years until they stopped emailing me at some point, I think in 2018 or maybe 2019. I don't know whether I was aged out of it or they thought I'd been a judge for too long or I didn't vote in enough categories or what. I don't know. Uh, and it's totally fine. Uh, at any rate, the Beard Awards were going through a transformation that was probably overdue at that point. The awards started as uh, a booze cruise in 1990 or 1991. It was just a small affair to honor some fine dining luminaries. Uh, and then the next year, it moved on to a ballroom at the Marriott Mar Marquis Hotel in New York, and, and then became a red carpet affair at Avery Fisher Hall at Lincoln Center here in New York City, and now they are at the Lyric Opera. Uh, in Chicago. Uh, and during that time, the prestige of food in general in the United States has really been transformed. Food used to be, you know, a hobby for niche people. Other people, you know, didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. The Food Network didn't exist yet, let alone all of the competition shows that have become so popular and that have really moved food to the center of American culture. Of course, with a higher profile comes higher scrutiny, and some people in the food world, including myself, began to complain that the same people and their protégés kept getting nominated and winning Beard Awards year after year. Others complained that the awards were awfully male and white, which was certainly true, and several prominent past winners were, as the Me Too movement gained momentum, they were accused and in at least one case arrested for sexual misconduct. The Beard Foundation and the awards committee, to its credit, in my opinion, responded to all of this, plus of course the devastation wrought on the industry by the pandemic, by reworking the awards. They changed who qualified as judges and they changed awards criteria requiring that anyone nominating a restaurant or restaurateur also had to provide a short statement about how the candidate, and I quote, is aligned with one or more of the award's mission and the foundation's values centered around creating a more equitable, sustainable, and healthy work culture. That's the end of my quote. The, the pandemic resulted in the awards and Beardhouse winners basically being, excuse me, Beard House dinners, not winners, basically being suspended for 2020 and 2021. And the winners of the 2022 awards looked very different from past winners. Now there's less of a focus on fine dining and much more of a focus on trying to make the world a better place. Many, many people in the restaurant world complained that the award winners no longer reflected fine dining excellence. Many others said that the shift was a welcome one, allowing the voices of those heard from less often to be amplified. And, and maybe 
taking a different look at what makes for dining excellence or restaurant excellence, but I think that's a dialogue that's worth having anyway. As a former judge, I can tell you that the awards were always problematic. For example, I was allowed to vote for the country's outstanding pastry chef, of which there were around 20 semi-finalists that we voted on to narrow it down to five or sometimes six nominees. I was not qualified to do that because there was no way for me to be really familiar with all of those pastry chefs from all over the country. There was no budget to dine in the local restaurants, but I did that anyway on my own dime. But there was no way that I could jet set across the country to eat all of those pastries. So that was one category I didn't vote on. Also, what does it mean to be the country's outstanding pastry chef? How do you even define that? How do you narrow it down? There are thousands and thousands of pastry chefs. How is one more outstanding than all of the others? These days, rumor has it, I don't know for sure, but rumor has it that judges do now have a budget to check out restaurants, and the judges are vetted differently, so that's great. And if you want to know more about the changes in the Beard Awards, you can read all about it uh, on Restaurant Hospitality's website. Just search for James Beard Foundation and you'll find all sorts of articles. I've written about it extensively. What I have not yet written about is the future of the James Beard House itself. Uh, I'm told that those nightly dinners, which arguably were the original pop-ups, are gone. The house is not going to resume them at the Beard House, and instead that's going to be a an event space, maybe for sponsored events or fundraisers or whatever they want. But the Beard Foundation is launching a food hall at Pier 57 on the Hudson River, not that far from the Beard House itself, and it's possible that similar d dinners will be taking place there with better kitchen facilities. But may start happening later this year or next year. I don't know. Time will tell. In the meantime, I invite you, please, to stay with me and listen to our guest for this week, the James Beard Foundation Award-winning Best Chef in the Southeast, Ricky Moore. How you doing? Man, you know what? Here's how I'm doing. You know, I've always seen you in the publication, just a little image of you all these years. And now I get to see you face to face, man. So that's real stuff, man. I appreciate that. Well, gosh, that's that's awfully nice. I'm glad I'm glad you're familiar with me. Not everybody. Oh, oh uh, yeah. You know, I mean, that, that was I mean, I've been reading the. Uh, you know, in for a long time, man, just kind of understanding the other side of the business outside of the craft of cooking, you know what I mean? Right. You know, yeah, because I've always, uh, you know, looked at myself as somebody who, you know, start a brand, you know what I mean, and want us to be in that space, so. Well, I'm glad that you've been reading, and and it looks like it it has helped you to be successful, because now you, you seem to be doing pretty well. You are the, you're the, you're the owner of Saltbox Seafood Joint in Durham, right? Yes, and you just got the James Beard Foundation Award for Best Chef in the Southeast. That's pretty awesome. Yes, yes. I, I'm, I'm pleased to be recognized. 
you know, uh, you know, when you when you leave your parents' house, it's, they tell you to do the best you can. So that's the way I see it. I've always done the best I could. So you get recognized for doing the best effort, putting forth the best effort. So why don't you tell everybody about uh, your background and history and how you ended up at Saltbox? Oh, wow. Oh. So, okay, so let me give you a lot of different versions. It will be fast and quick and slow and easy. Take all the time. So, okay. So um, I guess um, growing up in East North Carolina, okay, I grew up around a lot of good cooks. So, you know, uh, the idea of soul food, um, the word I knew growing up was country cooking. So I, AKA rule, AKA peasant, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, I grew up eating very simple one pot dishes, that sort of thing. Very um, garden centric. The term farm to table didn't mean anything to me back then. It was garden centric. You know, everybody had a garden. Everybody had some sort of chicken coop. So I grew up with all that kind of stuff. Smoke houses, chicken coop, slaughtering pigs in October, that sort of thing. But I wasn't into food. I was very much into eating. But um, I was going to be an artist. Brett. That's what I was going to do. That was my claim to fame. To say. Everything I did through high school was art, you know. And, uh, you know, I used to watch. Say again. Like painting and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Painting, drawing, uh, stippling, you know. So I was one of these kids who were a big PBS fan. And I watched my, my guy who drew the uh, Happy Little Clouds. You know, you know, our guy with the little afro and everything. Yeah, you know. So yeah, yeah. I, watched, I watched him a lot, you know what I mean? So that was what I wanted to do, you know. And uh, all through high school, that's what I did. But, you know, along the way, you know, food was always in my space. You know, whether it be, you know, for celebratory events, weddings, funerals, that sort of thing. And even, you know, the only time I went to church, Brett, was when I knew they were going to be serving food on Sunday. And particularly specific uh, ladies who cook specific things. So um, I wanted to give you that context because indirectly I came into food. So um, I didn't want to go to college and I joined the military. And uh, when I joined the military, I became a, a military cook. And I think that's kind of how I got bit by the bug a little bit because I was traveling around, stationed in different places, deployed in different places. And outside of, you know, obviously doing my job as a, as a soldier, you know, um, I went outside and understood the culture of things. I was also an army brat. So uh, 10 years of my life was spent in Germany. So, you know, that cultural sort of um, interest, uh, wanted to explore different things. And I was always like a hungry kid. You know, I really enjoyed food, you know, so, I used to spend time learning and, uh, you know, um, I decided to pursue cooking as a career and uh, talk to uh, what we call the chief warrant officer, who was a person sort of like the expert in a particular uh, field in the military. And he said, look, if you're going to pursue this, you know, you should pursue going to CIA. And so that's what I did. Now, he didn't you know, mean in Langley. He meant in Hyde Park, right? That is correct. Yes, of course. The Culinary Institute of America. Let me make sure that's clear. <laughs> yeah, but um, but yeah. So going going back a little bit, um, I worked in a lot of fish houses and you know barbecue joints growing up in high school. You know, so there again, always around food. You know, didn't really, didn't really have an interest in, but I started to pursue it and study it. You know, I got out of the military um, and I started working around learning. You know, really put myself in um, untraditional situations to learn the business. You know, and then when I went to CIA, you know, I had a ton of experience behind me already, you know, having spent time in the military. And I want to speak to the time I spent in the military. That's really important to me. You know, that I learned service and I learned hospitality in the military because, you know, 
um, to be a cook in the military, you have a specific mission, particularly when you're in theater or you're out, you know, um, abroad. You know, I spent time in the Gulf, so I understood what a good meal meant to a soldier out there when they were so far away from home. So our mission was always to make sure that we delivered a wholesome meal, okay, consistently over and over again, because that was the only morale booster, booster sometimes in those environments, you know, but I cooked in a lot of different environments and large quantity cooking and that sort of thing. But moving forward, went to CIA, Brett, invaluable experience, invaluable. Here's what I want to share. What made the connection for me is that that school was started by GIs. Okay, so for me, you know, when uh, when the when this uh, individuals came back from World War One or Two, they came back and they started the school in Connecticut, and so that's how the school started. So that made me even more inspired. So uh, went to CIA, uh, had a great time. You know, spent a lot of time in the library, did a lot of stodge work in New York City. You know, worked in places like uh, uh, Danielle's and La Bernadan and Lespinas and anybody in between that I could work for free because that was easy. You know what I mean? Anybody can say no to free labor. <laughs> but, but um, you know, so um, graduated CIA and um, started my career in the Washington, D.C. area. So worked for folks like, uh, you know, uh, Roberto Donna, um, Yanni Cam, uh, Jeff Bubin, um, Todd Gray. Um, and then I, op- I helped to open up uh, the Washington D location of of, of Nas. So, you know, um, did all that, uh, moved to Chicago, started working for the Kempton Group. Prior to that, I did a sabbatical in Paris, just hanging out, cooking. So I did a lot of stage work there, um, uh, a place called Le Surf in uh, Alsace. Uh, man, I can't remember all these places, but did a lot of free work. My wife just kind of hung around and walked in Paris eating a... Uh, uh, baguettes with ham and, and butter on them <laughs> while I worked. And then uh, came back. Yeah. And I came back and uh, I was communicating to Charlie Trotter prior to coming back to the States. And, uh, you know, my wife said, we want to move to Chicago. I said, okay, cool. Let's do it. So I moved to Chicago, got there, talked to Charlie Trotter. I did some stodge work with him. Started working with uh, Oprah for um, a little bit. And then from there, um, I opened up a restaurant with the Kempton Group called Southwater Kitchen, which was on Wacker and Wabash at the Hotel Monaco, okay? Uh, and uh, after then, um, wow, I uh, went to open up a cooking school on the south, si- the south side of Chicago called the Washburn Culinary Institute. And within that school, there was a restaurant called the Parrot Cage. It was a reference to the high-end restaurant back in the day in Chicago called La Parrot Cage. And so the, the person in charge of the school, you know, he did his research and we did sort of a modern version of that. But I, you know, it was also a teaching uh, school, a teaching restaurant as well. So all the students came down and I taught them the real lives, ins and outs of running business. So after that, um, uh, am, I, am I getting too long-winded, Brett? No, keep going. Okay. And then after that, um, uh, my wife and I, we had our first child, a hunter. And uh, we moved back close to the family and we moved back to Washington, D.C. And uh, opened up a restaurant uh, that was owned by the North Dakota Farmers Union. It's called Agraria. It was down in Georgetown. Okay, so this is a 300 seat restaurant, sort of a modern farmhouse feel, which is now called Founding Farmers, 
which is several locations in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. Yep. Okay. Uh -huh. And so um, after that, uh, I, um, man, I miss a whole lot of stuff. But, um, after that, I uh, opened a restaurant or uh, took on a, 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 my last restaurant in the D.C. area. Uh, it was called Indie Blue. Okay. And it was a sort <laughs> of a modern take on Indian Indian restaurant, Indian food, that sort of thing. Uh, Tabush. Yeah, sort of, yes, it was a, a modern uh, Lebanese restaurant. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so um, after that, my wife and I said, you know, well, I said, hey, we, I want to move back to North Carolina. And so when I moved back to North Carolina, you know, the goal, Brett, was to open my own business. But I thought about it. I said, you know what? Let me rethink this because I don't understand the market now. I don't understand what's going on. So let me take on another job. So when I first moved back, um, I moved to uh, Chapel Hill and I uh, was at a restaurant in Carborough called Glass Half Fool. So that was um, sort of the, all the rage with the whole wine bar, shareable menu item thing. So that's what um, they were doing there. And I was very privy to that, really easy, really straightforward. Small kitchen, wine-centric menu, small shareable plates. And so I stayed there for probably three, uh, three years or what have you. And then I opened up a restaurant, Mediterranean restaurant um, called Giorgio's. And then I opened up another restaurant in Chapel Hill called City Kitchen, sort of a mod American brasserie. After that, Brad, I said, you know what? It's time for me to start my own concept. And uh, I didn't want to do any of that, even though that was all of my experience. I wanted to spend time in a space, and now I reference the NRN. I wanted to spend time in the quick service, fast casual concept because I kind of felt like chefs were missing out on an opportunity in that category, you know, because you see other people rolling out these concepts that fed the masses, okay? And for me, I'm like, wait a minute, you got people who are non-chefs. I'm not knocking those folks. They're business people. I understand that. But, you know, chefs need to spend more time doing that you know, kind of expanding on our portfolio as it pertains to what it means to develop, create a brand and have it be a mass appeal. So I spent a lot of time studying that, you know what I mean? Over the years, I said, okay, if I open up a concept, that's what I want to do. Quick service, fast schedule. Um, Saltbox came to mind and here's, here was the inspiration. First of all, my wife asked me, um, where can I get a good fish sandwich from? And I didn't have an answer for her. Secondly, you know, I grew up in Eastern North Carolina, so grew up eating a lot of seafood, okay? Uh, I could have done many things, Brett, but this, the location that I found felt like a place where people should go and get fried fish and grilled fish and spiced fish and smoked fish. So I had an opportunity to go to Singapore. Went up to Singapore for like uh, three weeks, and our chaperone took us around to all these hawker stalls, and that was the aha moment. I felt like, okay, cool. I can. I want to do something like this that's sort of like one ingredient driven, you know, quality centric, but mass appeal. So that was the inspiration of Saltbox. And uh, to be very honest with you, Brett, I an executive chef there, you know, it was kind of old to me. I needed something new. And I like to tell everybody that, you know, um, Saltbox was sort of like my apprenticeship to entrepreneurship. It allowed me to be creative again. It was almost like, you know, I was back on the line again. I was thinking about things, you know, I, I came up with the logo, you know, going back to that art thing, I'm very creative. I came up with the color palette, you know, going back to the art, you know, so all everything came together. 
And honestly, my first restaurant was nothing more than a station because it was 205 square feet total. So any any re- any uh, station in a, in a restaurant is probably that amount of space. But I was in love. I was excited. I was fired up. I was like, there was no tomorrow. I'm going to get it done. And, uh, you know, it was even more fulfilling that, you know, I didn't have a investor or anything like that. You know, it was all me, you know. So I was, I, I, I jumped off the cliff, man. And uh, I was building the parachute coming down, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got some traction. You know, got traction, you know, people started, you know, coming or whatever. I had a, I had a reputation, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, Iron Chef competitor, all that sort of thing, you know, whatever. But, you know, bottom line is I was, I took everything very fundamentally and very old school. I got on my bike and I started putting flyers on people's uh, window shields in the car. You know, I just started really hustling and uh, it paid off. And uh, three years in business, I paid off on my debts. Uh, the fourth year, I bought a food truck. And then all of a sudden, I was in the, my fifth year saying, okay, where do I go next? And um, um, I used to ride up past a place that was built in 1969 called the uh, Shrimp Boat. And I told myself, if that place ever became available, that would be my transition place, my second location. And guess what happened, Brett? It was up somebody, somebody came and told me, hey, they're selling. And I got hot and heavy on it. And I got into it. And I you know, did what I needed to do, got loans and boom, I was in, I was on a construction and, uh, my second location opened up in 2017, man. And so here we are now, five years later, moving through a pandemic, managing through that, you know, um, that was challenging, but I was sort of, a pseudo, um, pandemic ready, if you will. My concept, my original concept was a walk-up window sort of thing. So I was already organized for that. You know what I mean? My second location, I just closed down the dining room and people came in takeout. So it was pretty straightforward, you know? Um, I did a lot of creative stuff like everybody else had to do. I had to adjust, but I was always built for crises anyway, just like everybody else in the restaurant business. But, you know, like I said, I was blessed to have the type of concept that I had that I could move in a different direction because I didn't have all the other bells and whistles. And... uh, what else? What else do I have to say? Uh, man, I feel I feel like a giant sometimes, you know, having moved through that. You know, I got a stripe on my shoulder, you know, like that, that military, like, you know, I got pinned, you know, like I survived the COVID, you know, sort of thing. So that's a short story, I guess. Yeah, sort of a battlefield promotion in COVID. You... Absolutely. And uh-huh. Yes. And I, I was a yeah. soldier. So there are two salt box locations now, right? No, sir. OK, so let me share with you. Um, my lease was up uh, two years ago, okay? So I, I had a 10-year lease at my original location. And obviously during that time in COVID, you know, I mean, it was, it was, a, it was great timing, okay? And just like in all the other neighborhoods, Greg, you know, um, the folks who owned the property sold it to somebody and they built condos on it, you know what I mean? But it was all healthy. My, my, I was extended beyond my lease, so everything was cool. The person who bought it, you know, was very cordial and very supportive and, you know, helped me move out and all that. So it was a very um, unique situation. A lot of times it's the latter, but, you know, it was, it was real healthy. So all was well. So you moved to your dream spot on the shrimp boat. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and, and the, um, I'm sorry, I was already there. So I had been in business at my second location three years already. So I had both, 
both of them open simultaneously, but the original one is uh, closed. I see. And when did you close it recently? Uh, let's see here. Uh, whoa, whoa, let's see. Probably two years ago. Okay. I would say two years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. During the pandemic. Yes. You got out of there. And and yeah. so what what's the food like at Sunbox? Um, I like to describe it as a sort of an urban sort of seafood joint that celebrates North Carolina fisher folk. Okay, let me define fisher folk. That means men and women, because there are a lot of fisher women out there who are doing great work as well. So I don't I want to discount them. But, um, you know, it's a seasonal centric um, celebrating North Carolina seafood. Okay, and it was designed simply. I've never had a printed menu on a piece of paper. It's always been on a chalkboard. So I get seasonal seafood and I cook it, you know, uh, very simple ways, either fried, griddled, or smoked or cured, or any other preparation I feel like doing. But the, the, the majority of the time, customers are more interested in uh, the fried or the grill. And, uh, you know, it's a rotating menu, you know, straightforward, seasonally driven. Um, I have sides that are slaw. I have a slaw that I'd make that is... Uh, not mayonnaise-based. It's more of a lemon dressing, a citrus dressing, very rich and relish-like, a lot of and very herbaceous. I also have an item that's called uh, hush honeys. So it's my uh, creation, sort of like if hush hush puppies and zeppelins had a baby, that's what this is. And that was my time spent working in uh, Roberto Donner's kitchen. You know, I used to make zeppelins in the dessert section all the time. So it's a and, little uh, lighter than your average hush puppy. Yes. Absolutely. It'd be a little more lighter, you know, still in the traditional shape. And then I glaze them with sort of a sort of a spice rub, you know, that is uh, licorice and citrus notes, coriander notes. And then I glaze it with honey. You know, um, traditionally, when you go to a fried fish place in eastern North Carolina or North Carolina in general, you get a batch of the hush puppies with that little cup of butter. Mm-hmm. All right. When I first opened up, I said, butter's too expensive. I'm just going to do honey. That's what we're going to do, you know, and sort of like a, it's sort of like a pseudo savory and dessert sort of off. Um, also, we have uh, what I call fried potatoes, sort of a home fry-esque sort of thing. So if French fries and potato chips have, no, if hash browns, okay, and potato chips have a baby, that's what this is. It's crispy, it's soft, it's oniony, it's got green peppers in it, you know, so if it's sort of like a, I like to call it a supper potato as opposed to just French fries, you know. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, also, all of my sauces are, you know, house made, but they're pourable, Brett. They're not as dense and thick as you would see in a lot of places. Sort of a pourable sauce. So I like to, you know, I kind of pride myself in that. And they're very simply made, very straightforward. Why do you um, what else here? Why do you want them to be pourable yeah. instead of, I don't know, spreadable or scoopable? Or- uh, just, just because it's, it's easy to, you know, it, for me, as I think about it, when I'm trying to scoop a sauce out of a little container and I can't spread it on everything evenly, it's kind of cumbersome, right. personally. You know what I mean? That's all. And when I say horrible, it's not watery, but it's, it's, it has a, a, um, a nappe sort of uh, coating, if you will. You know what gotcha. I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And people enjoy that. You know what I mean? So there's no waste. You got to scrape it out and half spread it on this, half spread it on that. So, you know. Um, I also have a, a dish bread that I thought to, that was appropriate for the region. And I did it because I felt like 
North Carolina always gets skipped over when it's talking about seafood preparations historically. You know, Calabash is the reference, and that's it. And I understand that. That's fair. But, you know, since South Carolina is known for shrimping grits, I said, you know what? I'm going to do crab grits. So what is that? So I grew up in eastern North Carolina, a place called Orient, uh, uh, New Bern, but 30 miles down the road is Oriental North Carolina. Some of the best crabs on the East Coast come from there. All right. And I'll argue anybody that says, uh, you know, uh, well, a lot of the crabs that's from there go up to Maryland. But a lot of people would challenge me on that. But I used to take, um, I still do, I take grits, local grits, and I take the bodies of the crab and I simmer it inside the crab milk, sort of make a crab milk stock and it's aromatic. I strain that off, okay? And then I cook my grits inside of that. I also take the roe, okay, and make a crab roe butter. Then obviously the lump crab meat, the back fin meat and everything else, I make sort of a ragu out of that. And so what I do is I take the crab roe butter, cook the grits, I kind of mount that crab roll butter inside the grits. Then I make a ragu from uh, cream, crab, shallots, um, sherry. Okay. And I kind of, like I said, make a stewy sort of ragu sort of thing. And I spoon it right over top. And man, I'm going to tell you something. People go gaga over it, man. I only do it on Saturdays. It's a very, um, like I said, a special dish, you know, because when I first opened, that's what I did. And people should line up to get it. Yeah, it sounds so, great. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And so you, you say you're seasonally driven. So are you working with a lot of, well, you said you work with a lot of the local fisher folk. Right, right, exactly. Is, is, so are, are most of your fish, is most of your fish from the sort of East Coast, Carolina, low country kind of area? Yes, and, I, and just like everything else, I've, I've built this concept around that idea. Now, obviously there's micro-regional, and obviously you got to spread out sometimes because fish, seafood is seasonal. Right. And that's, that's one thing I used to, you know, sort of indirectly been educating the consumer on about that. You know, the idea that, you know, certain things are not caught or not in season, so they won't be served. So if you like something and you, you love it and, you know, but I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have it to sell to you, you know? And so when that happens and I'll go like, you know, spread out a little bit more sort of Eastern seaboard. So I go up to Virginia you know what I mean? I go down to South Carolina, you know, that sort of thing, you know. But, yeah, I'm just trying to make sure I stay as regional as I can from an eastern seaboard standpoint. Makes sense. One, and, you yeah. know, sounds like you don't go that far north to Virginia, not, not as much to, say, New York. Right, 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 exactly. Now, I like to say this to everybody, too. A lot of times, you know, we have scallops here in North Carolina, but obviously scallops are the boats from North Carolina go up to Massachusetts and get scallops and come back to from Bedford and come down. So I want to make sure that people know that. Now there's very um, indigenous species that are in our waters. Okay. Because we are blessed at that brackish water certain time of year. And it's a beautiful thing. That's where everything hangs out. So, you know, you talk about things like sheep's head, amberjack, spade fish. Um, my big fan, I, I'm kind of known as the bonefish evangelist, meaning, you know, I really enjoy and I grew up eating, you know, small panfish or dress fish, i.e. croakers, spots, hogfish, butterfish, that sort of thing. You know, and uh, I often try to celebrate those and they do have a space on my menu because, you know, I want people to appreciate that fish for sustainability. You know, obviously a lot of people don't eat it because their culture is conditioned to eat fillets, which I understand. Don't get me wrong, but 
you know, you know, as I have moved through the ranks and traveled around, you know, a lot of other countries really appreciate their whole fish. You know, so I'm like, you know, why can't we treat ours the same way with the same reverence? You know, so I do um, try to, you know, get people to order it because it is a sustainable fish as well. Yeah, yeah. And often it's it's bycatch that would be thrown back, but it's not going to live once you've already caught it. So you're just, you know, wasting That's it. That's right. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there's a fish that I really that I really put on the menu that I like people to try is the, uh, the the puffer fish, which is a species that's not poisonous, you know, but uh, it's a really delicious fish. You know what I mean? And, and I, I, I like to liken it to like, uh, you know, uh, it's a sweet, sweet meat, very mild, you know, so it's like a chicken wing. Oh. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, and it's real, real tasty. So, you know, um, I just try to make sure I'm celebrating what we have in our waters. That's that's great. What what is your most popular fish? Uh, hard question, but I would say the most popular preparation bread is going to be uh, when when mahi's in season. I put a spice rub on it. It's a sort of a sort of a homemade spice rub that I do, and I grill the fish. So either I do mahi when it's in season or dogfish, okay, which is another fish that a lot of people would not turn on to, you know, um, prior to me serving it technically um technically it's a small sand shark that's what it is okay and from a historical standpoint that was the original fish and chips it was not cod it was not halibut it was not a white mouth thicky fish it was this firm sort of because uh, it was very abundant it's a small sand shark you know and it's it's mild tasting and people really enjoy it you know but the most popular preparation is the spiced grill fish but it's it's firmer and meatier than your average white fish right that is correct, uh, but but it but it flakes. It has a it has a a, a a flake characteristic that is not that can be very similar to grouper. Hmm. So yeah. so your customers are willing to try new fish or like they they go away from the salmon halibut world and are willing to dig into a wider variety of different fish. Yeah, and that took time. All right. Um, in the very beginning, when I first opened Brett, I had a you know, obviously I was dealing with a market that was known to eat something very specific. And I understood that because I have people in my family like that. But I had to have a menu that people can identify with. And I had to create a trust me menu. Okay. And what that was, I gave them the opportunity to, to believe in me that I could cook the things that they already knew. So then when I had that trust me menu, I said, okay. Let me put this up here and explain, and hopefully I can get them to eat this sort of thing. They already trust me because I, I knew how to cook their flannel correctly or their shrimp or their oyster, whatever. So I said, look, try this. It's similar to this. And that's how I built this sort of um, indirect educational component to the restaurant, right? You know, now I got people who like eating mullet. In the very beginning, people would not dare touch mullet. It didn't even sound right. And those who knew it knew traditionally folks use it for bait. But on the contrary, it's a very, very important fish in eastern North Carolina and coastal North Carolina. Very important. Well, I would think traditionally in North Carolina, people ate whatever they could catch. It's yes, not, it's not a rich part of the country, so people just, you know, whatever they can catch, they eat it. Yes, exactly. And, th and those folk who knew about it, um, they would know, they would eat it, but I'm talking about folk who, who didn't grow up there. Right. Who, who, are, who, are, who are different. You know what I mean? I'm sorry. Somebody's, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, that's right. okay. Don't worry about it. 
This yeah, yeah, yeah. Life, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. But um, but yeah, um, um, it was a. Uh, I had fun doing it. I had fun because now after ten years of being in business, Brett, man, I got people who come eat mullet, uh, come eat sheep's head. They come eating all this stuff. Like, where's this? Where's that? They know what's in season, and they don't even know it. They know more about North Carolina fish than most people know, just as a consumer. By by being your customer. Exactly. So yeah. I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about your military experience. So you grew yeah. up as a military brat. You're, so you come from a military family, right? Yes. And yes. Then, then you joined, what service did you join? Uh, the Army. Okay. And you joined the Army. And how did you become a cook? Did you say... I want to be a cook, or did they say you look like a cook? Like I don't. How does that happen? Uh, you know what? Um, here's the thing. It was a. It was a choice. Mm-hmm. It was a choice. And let me tell you what was the motivation. The motivation was I could get promoted faster in that field. That that was a true motivation. You know, went to recruiter. You know, you got to. My father briefed me on how the recruiters work, so I understood how to navigate some things. But the bottom line was, you know, since that field wasn't as, you know, just like our business has always been, you know, they they want to perceive it as something lesser than because it's not as technical, but on the contrary, all right, you have to have some, lots of intelligence, lots of, uh, you know, uh, discipline behavior to be a professional cook. But I chose that. And the main reason was I can get promoted back. So I was 19 years old, uh, Brett, I was a sergeant. Wow. Yeah. In two years, I was a sergeant. I was leading people. So that was the motivation, you know, and obviously, I got a, a dual benefit. I was inspired by it. I, uh, I, I took a liking to it. You know, I, I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed what it meant to, you know, like, like I said, feed troops and feed soldiers in different environments, whether it be what we call the garrison environment, which, are, you know, a non-combat situation or in combat environments. You know, um, it was just a wonderful experience. And, and also I like to share with people, particularly in the military, there was a, um, a culinary team, a U.S. Army culinary team that competed in France, and they placed well. Okay, you know, make no mistake about it. We ain't talking about mash here. Okay, there's some very disciplined, uh, professional cooks. You know, who, you know, frankly, like I said, um, obviously, um, the creative component depended upon what facility you were in and who was in charge. But there were regulations that governed how we made things. There were recipes, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, um, it was as a recipe for Kool-Aid, Brett. We had to make Kool-Aid based on the regulation that governs it. And um, uh, also there was like this color-coded recipe uh, catalog. And uh, you can find it online today, but it was, I still have an old old copy of it, but it was brilliant. You know, we had recipes for, you know, to serve 50, to serve 100, you know, and, they were good, good recipes. I still have some of them today that I use when I do large parties. What's the largest number of people you had to cook for? In the military? Yeah, or anywhere. I, I assume okay. it was Well, I'm, I'm, I'll first reference the military. Probably, you know, I'm going to talk about the breakfast meal period. That is the most treacherous, particularly if you're working on the, the eggs to order station. That, that, was the, uh, that was tremendous, but probably 500 people. I can get my uh, extra order if I join the military. That's pretty classy. Well, I mean, you know, back then, you know, that was the that was a, the the extra order station on the in the military. Um, 
uh, was uh, sort of like the saucier station in a fine dining kitchen. If you could work that station, you were a rock star. Right. Okay. You were a rock star, you know. So I uh, I had a fantastic time, but you had to sink or swim, though, you know. But I, I fed about 800 people, you know, obviously with other other people, but 800 people on a, on a, um, a breakfast, lunch, and dinner, okay. And then we did, like, overnight baking. So you had to make all the pastries overnight and have them ready in the morning. Um, and uh, the most people I've ever served was in, at Kennedy Center in D.C., where we did um, cave cookery. Cave cookery. Yeah. So what that means, what that means is hot boxes with a bunch of sternos. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. uh, we used to cook, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the dishes were engineered so that we can cook things correctly. But we, you know, beef tenderloins, you know, asparagus, you know, you can heat those up pretty fast, you know. But, but yeah. And we did probably a thousand people there. That's the only way you could do that, you know, yeah. if you use hot boxes with, with sternos in it and sheet pans. And what was your job at that time when you cooked for, at the Kennedy Center? Oh, I was um, actually um, one of the chefs in charge at a catering company. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's cool. See, I would think you would have learned a lot about volume cooking in the military. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's straight. It's, it's, that's all you do. You know what I mean? And uh, even the cooking vessels, right? You know what I mean? We had lines of stock pots that you can take a bad thing. You know what I mean? Um, right. You know, making chili for 500 making grits for 500, you know, even, even making bacon, you know what I mean? The, the whole idea, there's a specific way of making bacon for that many people. So it all comes out uniformly done and crispy. How do you, you do know? it? Well, I mean, sheet pan style. Okay. You know, it was very, it's very specific though. You had to layer the, it had to be fat on fat. You know what I mean? And then you layered it up, kind of shingle it, put it on a pan, cook it to a certain temperature, bring it out and kind of scramble it around. And then also put it right back in a certain temperature it cooks well every time. Huh. And has yeah. this, I assume it's helped you running Saltbox to, to be able to do a lot of food all at once. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, comparatively, Saltbox is a smaller environment. So, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I've learned to cook large cookery. But based on my facility, the, the original one, it was only 205 square feet, Brett. Wow. So yeah, it, was small, it was a small place. So I was very efficient. You know, that's what I, I learned. You know, I was very efficient. I was very, very organized. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, I had, a, I had a great time in learning all, and that's what made me. You know, I was, I was, I'm very satisfied by the fact that I'm very diverse in my experience. I'm not one dimensional, and I, that was by choice. I wanted to make sure I was able to work in a lot of different environments. So, what's next for Ricky Moore? Oh wow! Uh, I want to roll out a product line, Brett. I'm, I'm going to roll out. Steve. Seafood breader, hot sauce, um, seasoning, and uh, you know that sort of thing. I want to, I want to uh, create extensions of the brand now. You know, I think I did a good job in uh, you know establishing Saltbox as a, a regional brand. Now I want to take that and kind of spin off some things and you know scale the brand some more in different parts of the state. That that makes sense. I mean, a lot of people did that during the pandemic. They're like, well, I can't get people into my restaurant. Let's do retail. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm, I'm fired up about that. It's a whole other segment that I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't know about. So the learning process is lovely. You know, I'm learning a lot of things and I'm excited about it. Well, that's part of the fun of being a chef, isn't it? You get to learn new things all the time. Absolutely. Always a student. Always a student. That's magical. 
That's journalism is like that too. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, man. It, well, you know, it's good to see you, man. Oh, it's great, great to see you too. And I want to do it in real life in North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, want to get down there? That would be fun. Yeah. Yes. I haven't been in a while and uh, we are about out of time, but it it was great to meet you and uh, yes. and we'll do it again. Yes, sir. Appreciate you, man. <laughs>